Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve here as the transitional pastor at Firewell. We're glad that you are here with us, and those of you who are joining us online, welcome. I do want to, uh, uh, Greg is actually handing out every Sunday, uh, as you walk in, there are some tables. We do provide what's called a sermon guide. If you'd like to take notes and are a note taker, then it'll give you a way to follow through the sermon, and then also has some discussion questions on the back, so that way if you want to continue the discussion, so to speak, with the content of what we learned on Sunday, then we'd love for you to uh, take advantage of those things. One housekeeping note, by the way, I know that here's a first world problem. Uh, many of you have no noticed over the last number of weeks, and we mentioned this, but it's worth reminding you that it's a little bit darker here in the sanctuary. Well, the reason why is because at the same time, we literally had two different lighting units actually go out. So, uh, no, we're not necessarily trying to create atmosphere. It's actually a physical problem. So we are awaiting uh, units to come back for that repair. So uh, please, you know, so if you're using your light or whatever, just don't shine it in somebody else's eye uh, as you're looking at your Bible or your device, okay? But genuinely, uh, thank you for that. And like I said, first world problems, all right? Well, today we are bringing to a close our series we started a number of weeks on the table, and I hope that you guys have been enjoying this series as I have been enjoying bringing it to you. And basically in this series, we have looked at the metaphor of the table as shown throughout Scripture to see how it plays a role both in the lives of those who are in the church and also to those outside of the church as well. So just a reminder, we're going to briefly recap the series. The first week we talked about who is invited to the table. We looked at the discussion and when Jesus extends the invitation to Matthew, and then Matthew uh, has this gathering of tax collectors and sinners at his home, and we saw that with Jesus everyone is invited to his table. We also talked about the Lord's table. So we, we actually did a theology and breakdown of communion, which we do every single Sunday. So I hope that brought more significance and richness to your understanding of communion. We don't just do it out of ritual. We don't just do it out of practice. But the Lord's table causes us to look backwards, the historical element. It causes us to look around because we do it as a community. It causes us to look deeper as the Lord is instituting a new covenant. And it also causes us to look forward as we... Long for the day when Jesus will eat this meal with us again and our faith will literally be sight. We also talked about what it means to have bad table manners when community is not about me, but it's about we. When we looked outside of the collective we, sometimes we look to our own personal perspectives and we can have bad manners around the table. And then last week we looked at how God's table is a reserved table. It's reserved in the sense of those, God is inviting those, here is our one truth statement, God is inviting you to his table. So those who receive the invitation of God and come to him, and we looked at the, what's called the marriage, uh, the, the parable of the wedding feast. And we saw how the master sent out invitations. People had actually said that they were coming. Then there were three different groups that gave all these various different excuses. Then he sent his servant out again. And I think in this picture, we see the master as being God the Father, the servant being Jesus. And then he goes out to the highways and byways then to be able to invite all of those who are poor, crippled, lame, all of them to invite them to the banquet because the feast is prepared. So God is inviting people to his table. Now I've called today's message, as we finish off today, I've called it the messy table. Because if you notice something, 
When you gather around a table, table's a time for us to gather around, to converse, to have conversation, to be able to connect with each other. But also there is a time where around the table, the table could be a source of conflict. Any of y'all ever had some conflict around your table? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're lying in church. Okay, I will see you after service. All right. So we've all had conflict around the table, whether it's husband and wife or whether it's other family members. At times, this place that is a gathering spot for us has also been a point of conflict. In fact, conflict is guaranteed even within the closest human relationships. This does not mean that we should avoid the table. It does not mean that we should not uh, put ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable to have relationships. The very reality of you and I interacting with other human beings in relationships means you put yourself in a state of vulnerability. You put yourself in a place where you could get hurt. In human relationships, we all will let each other down, no matter how much we love each other. Conflict is inevitable in that way. However, that means we should embrace the table and all of its messiness. We should embrace and know that reality going forward, but we should embrace it and realize that when people are involved, things are messy. People are messy. You're messy. I'm messy. And I'm not just talking about physically messy. Okay? People are messy because we have stuff, because we're being perfected. We are imperfect. And so because of that, we struggle this side of heaven with the reality of our flesh and our own sin. We should strive as believers and as a church to avoid conflict, but did you know that there are times when conflict, I believe, is even necessary? Conflict is necessary to get at the root of some issues. Conflict sometimes is necessary when things that are brought into a relationship that do not stand, especially in a church context, that do not stand up to the scrutiny of the truth and what the church has always professed and believed. There are times when truth will butt against our own personal preferences. There will be times when those things come into conflict with one another. And I believe that that actually can be healthy. In today's story, we're going to look at a famous passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 15. So if you want to turn there, you can start turning there. We get to look in at an early church meeting. So this is great stuff right here. This is a church meeting that we're actually going to get to peer into. And in Acts chapter 15, this is what's happening to set the stage for you. Paul and Barnabas are having amazing ministry that's going on in the book of Acts to the Gentiles. And they're proclaiming all of the faith amongst the Gentiles that are happening, that's happening. But instead of rejoicing, this causes conflict with certain members of the Jerusalem church because they had their own understanding of how Gentiles could be saved. So they had their own traditions, they had their own understanding, and because of that, they were bringing that, and instead of rejoicing at what God was doing, they were actually calling it into question because they did not believe the validity of what was happening. So here's our one true statement this morning. Very simple, but very profound, and we'll flesh this out, is that conflict is inevitable in human relationships. Conflict is inevitable in human relationships. No matter how much you try to avoid it, some of you, how many of you would classify yourself as somebody who tries to, tends to avoid conflict at all possible ways? Y'all are conflict avoiders, okay? All right, that's okay. Some of y'all don't want to raise your hand because you feel that'd be a conflicting statement. That's okay too. I'm not trying to pick on y'all, I promise, okay? There are 
some of us who are more inclined when conflict arises to be more involved in conflict and others who retreat. I have a tendency to retreat when it comes to being involved in conflict myself. So I wear that badge, okay? But here's the deal. Conflict is inevitable. And I believe that sometimes we miss out on the beauty of working through tough stuff in relationships out of the sake of the fact that we don't want to deal with conflict. So we miss out on what God has for us. We miss out on the beauty of God's messy family that God is still perfecting and making holy. Guess what? You haven't arrived yet, and that person that you are in conflict with hasn't arrived yet either. So why don't y'all just work it out together so that way your, your work's in progress together. It's beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're going to talk a little bit about conflict and how it can prevent us from seeing God at work, as we said in Acts chapter 15. We're going to see two sections basically in this uh, passage. So the first thing I want you to see is what is the problem? Starting at verse 1, what is the, what I call the presenting problem? So what is the problem that is brought forward before the Jerusalem church? So let's start at verse 1 and we'll see what the problem is. But some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension in debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So right away, immediately in verse 1, we get the problem. So the problem is, is there's a theological problem, so to speak, that is presenting itself that needs to be addressed. So the setting is the church at Antioch, which we see at the end of chapter 14. And these unidentified men who come down from Judea are likely a Jewish group of Christians that potentially belong to the sects of the Pharisees. And we'll see why we make that connection later on in the passage. And without any authority within the church, they begin to teach and impose their own rules and regulations upon those who are believers in Antioch. This group is commonly called, we're going to put our theological hats on and look at a little historical context for a moment. This group is commonly called the Judaizers. Now why do we use that term and what does that actually mean? Judaizers were a group of people that believed that Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish descent by lineage, by blood had to convert to Judaism first in order to be saved. A Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian truly to be right with God, he must or she must conform to the Mosaic law. So circumcision especially was promoted as necessary for salvation. Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytes first, Jewish converts, before they can then come to Christ. The doctrine of the Judaizers, in this way, we could say, was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through the keeping of the law. This is what we would call syncretism. It's basically a blending of two theological systems or two, two, two different lines of thoughts and trying to make this one system. This group was basically saying you had to keep the old way of the old covenant. You had to keep the old Mosaic law. And then when you converted to ethnic Judaism, then you could then become a Christian after that. So this was making additions to the things that were required of them to become believers in Jesus. So this is a theological issue, and so obviously Paul and Barnabas, who are essentially ministers to the Gentiles, took, took a big problem with what was going on. So they've been ministering amongst the Gentiles, and it's been suggested then that they bring outside counsel. So what happens is they call 
the Jerusalem church, and then they're brought before the church, and then this whole theological argument is then brought into play and brought into focus. The church at Jerusalem was seen as the mother church, the doctrinal center of the early church in the book of Acts. So it's not unfamiliar that, and it, it would be right in this case, for the apostles to take up this issue and the elders at this mother church. That was the doctrinal center of the early church life. Look at verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Talking about Paul and Barnabas. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Look at verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, that's why I believe that this is a Pharisaical group, specifically these Judaizers, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. If you think about it, it's no surprise when we read about the Pharisees, especially when you read about them in the Gospels, the Pharisees in many regards get a bad rap. And the reason they get a bad rap is they genuinely believe that what Jesus was teaching was some kind of new teaching. They were actually trying to preserve what they thought to be true. Now, obviously, they didn't always do that in the right way. And they didn't understand and recognize Jesus as Messiah, so there's levels of problems there. But it's not unfamiliar or unlikely to think that some of these Pharisees who actually were always around when Jesus was teaching would actually become Christians themselves. I believe Nicodemus became a believer. In John, the conversation that, that he has with Jesus in John chapter 3, I believe Jesus beca Nicodemus becomes a believer. And I think we have some allusion to that even in the rest of the Gospels. But that being said, it's not surprising that some of them would become believers. But in doing so, they're trying to, they have to put off all of the tradition of what they understood and then make sense of what Jesus is teaching and try to bring those two principles together. You could see why they may say, well, it's necessary for somebody to get circumcised. Because circumcision was a sign that you were part of the covenant. You were part of the people of God if you were circumcised. If you weren't, you weren't part of the people of God. So in some ways, it makes sense. The Pharisees had a commitment to an extensive oral tradition, which they promoted as truth. And it often was what brought them into conflict with Jesus and Paul on numerous occasions. It amazes me that when you read these verses, Luke distinctly mentions all that Paul and Barnabas are doing. The amazing works that are being done amongst the Gentiles. And instead of rejoicing, the Pharisees fixate on they're not following tradition. The Pharisees are fixated on the fact they're not listening to the wonderful testimonies and everything that's going on. All they fixate on is, are these people circumcised? They haven't been circumcised, so they can't be saved. Here's my principle. Let's bring this home. We're doing a lot of background work. Let's bring this home. Do not limit your ability to see God working by making him subject to your tradition. Let me say that again. Do not limit your ability to see God working by making him subject to your traditions. Here's what I mean. is that God does not only work within the framework of my own understanding or my own religious upbringing. I am not the source of all truth. You are not the source of all truth. God works outside of you. God works outside of me. God works outside of my understanding. He works outside of your understanding. His ways are not our ways. Last time I checked, that's what scripture says. 
And I am certainly not going to put myself on the same field as he is. So God works so far beyond the realm of our own thinking and framework because we are limited in our capacity to be able to think. God works in unique ways. So let's talk about tradition for a moment. What is tradition? Tradition, according to Webster's, is this. A way of thinking, behaving, or doing something that has been used by the people in a particular group, family, society, etc., for a long time. If you think about traditions for a moment, sometimes traditions begin as personal preferences. Traditions aren't in and of themselves bad or even good, but a lot of times they begin as personal preferences. So you may have a personal preference for something within your own family. Maybe it's something your family of origin didn't do when you were growing up. So you decide that you want to do this with your family, so it then becomes a tradition. It's your preference. You go ahead and you build that, and it's something that you pass on generationally, and it becomes a tradition within your family. I have personal preferences. We all do. Everybody has personal preferences. Nobody can escape those. Some of those preferences have meaning to us, so we can create this consistent pattern of life or thought around them. And before you know it, there are times when we can ask other people to operate within the realm of our preference. Please hear me. Sometimes, I think unconsciously and sometimes directly consciously, we can expect people to act within the realm of our own preferences. When people are unique, people aren't like you. Not every single person here is not a cookie-cutter representation of you. We all have our own distinctives. We, only have, we all have our own uniquenesses. There are some common things that bring us together, but there's a lot of freedom and flexibility outside of that. But sometimes we indirectly put our traditions and presuppositions upon other individuals and expect them to operate as we would. There are times when preferences move beyond to tradition. Everybody has traditions. Every person has traditions. And guess what? Every church has traditions. Every church has traditions. Here's the funny thing, if you grew up in a church where you weren't used to certain things being practiced every single Sunday, or we are at a Bible church, we are a little bit more what's called low church than high church. If you didn't grow up in a church where there was like this distinct uh, practice of maybe you uh, recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, or you did certain practices and certain things, you may think that, well, we don't have certain traditions or certain ways. Every church has its traditions. And like I said, those things aren't necessarily bad. Let me bring this and say this another way. When we talk about tradition related to theology, tradition is the teaching and practice of the church. It is formally distinct from scripture. It's something that's been handed down as normative. Let me say that again. It's the teaching and practice of the church, formally distinct from scripture. Now, when most people build tradition on a theological level, they may appeal to scripture. They're looking at scripture, looking at certain scriptural practices. They're using scriptural evidence to be able to build their tradition, the things that they practice and the things that they do. But it's distinct apart from scripture. It's not scripture in and of itself. That's really important. Let me give you a few examples. How many of y'all 
have traditional Easter dinner? How many of y'all, after Easter, you go to church? How many of y'all go to church on Easter, then have a family dinner together, right? Now, how many of those family dinners involve ham? Y'all do ham? A lot of people do ham on Easter. Y'all can raise your hands. We could be interactive. Interact with me. It's okay. I promise. So some of you have this tradition, right? You go to church on Easter Sunday. You maybe even wear your Easter best that Sunday. And then you have dinner or lunch afterward with your family. And I'm sure that that dinner typically has certain items that might be a part of that dinner. Though that's a very simple or trivial way in some ways. But that is tradition. You can point back to a time when maybe a family member was the one who started that. Maybe you meet at the same exact house. Or maybe it rotates houses every year. You have these same exact items in these meals. These same people are invited to this event. It becomes a tradition. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's, I would say that's good. It's good for families to be able to get together. Last week I showed you a picture of Jen's late Uncle Dean. And one tradition that he had that his family continued for a little while after his passing was, Dean, since he was so connected to D.C., every single year the White House Historical Association puts out a Christmas ornament. So what Dean would do is he would, for the whole family, he would buy the White House Historical Association Christmas ornament. Now these Christmas ornaments are pretty cool. They're pretty, they're pretty sweet every single year that they make these. So he would pass this tradition down, and it's nothing like I ever had in my family. This was very unique to Jen's family. My family never did really Christmas ornaments where they purchased them and passed them down traditionally from one generation to the next. And so every year you could guarantee and expect that Dean was going to get you the White House historical Christmas ornament. So once Dean had passed away for a period of time, his sister Judy took up the tradition. And really until her passing, which was tragic and a few uh, number of years later, she continued on that tradition. And every year we would get the White House historical ornament. I started embracing the tradition and really liked it myself. We went back even and purchased some of the old years that we didn't even have. And now that tradition has actually for, you know, traditions actually for, exist for a period of time sometimes and then sometimes they go away. And now to many regards that tradition has gone away. Let's talk about church traditions. Since every church has traditions. Let's talk about music for a second. Some of you grew up maybe with a traditional style of music. You grew up going to church where they played piano or an organ, and maybe that's your particular preference. Maybe some of you grew up where this is the only church you know, and you grew up with a more of drums and electric guitars, whatever the case may be. None of that is right or wrong. God can move through both. But can we miss seeing God because of our personal preference and style of music? Can we then try to project our own preferences onto another individual and think that God can only move in a certain way based upon a certain prescription as we believe based upon our own tastes and our own preferences? The truth is the Bible is full of speaking of, of dancing, playing of instruments, singing of songs in praise to our great God. At the end of the day, music is all throughout the scripture. It doesn't matter how music is done. What is matters is that practice of doing music while the people of God are together is a thing. You can't read the scripture and not see it. So when we sing on Sunday, it's not singing just because we like to do it or because we got good band players or because Chris Nelson is really good at his job. It is actually because the Bible is full of it. It's a practice that is as ancient as the origin of the church. The church has always sung praises to God together as the people of God. What about Sunday morning worship service? 
Churches meet typically on Sunday, and why do they do that? Have you ever thought why we actually meet on Sunday? We traditionally meet on Sunday because it's the first day of the week in celebration of the Lord's resurrection. In fact, it's a very ancient practice going back to after the time of the resurrection of Jesus. However, the early church, guess what, didn't just meet for one hour or 75 minutes on Sunday. They actually met more frequently than that, basically about every day of the week. So if we were actually trying to follow the tradition of the early church, like we like to try to say sometime, we'd be with each other every day of the week. And guess what? There are other churches that don't meet on Sunday, and that's not a sin. <gasps> Seriously. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but here's where it comes down to, and I've been building all this because this is really, really, really important. When your tradition or preference becomes an obstacle to loving people, there's a problem. Let me say that again. When your tradition or preference becomes an obstacle to loving people, that's a significant problem. Very significant problem. And when I'm talking about tradition, please hear me, I'm not talking about beliefs of the church. Because there are beliefs of the church that the church has always embraced. I believe there is a such thing as what we call a Catholic faith. Yes, I use the word Catholic in a non-Catholic church. And here's what I mean by that. Is I mean that there is genuinely a universal core set of beliefs and doctrines that make Christianity Christianity. Without those, you're not a Christian. I believe that, genuinely. And I believe there is a once and for all faith, according to Jude, that has been passed down to the saints. And I believe that those faiths are articulated as far back as we can see in the early church. Now that core group of truths, that's a theological tradition. Those, those interpretations, those truths have been passed down to us. And the church has affirmed those truths for thousands of years. Like the resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the humanity and the incarnation of Jesus. All of those things. I'm not talking about those. But when we're talking about traditions related to practices, sometimes we allow our practice to get in the way of loving people, and we wrap it under the banner and spiritualize it under the banner of Scripture, and we have a big problem. We should never allow those things to affect the way that we love people. And I believe many times when there's conflict within churches, it's in conflict because of things like this. So we first saw the problem. Let's look at verse 7. So what does the church do about it? What do they do about it? Look at verse 6. So the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter begins to make a statement, and he's recounting his experience. If we go back just a few chapters in the book of Acts, he's alluding to his experience at the house of Cornelius. If you remember the story, Peter gets a vision. He sees all these unclean animals, and he basically tells Jesus, I am not going to eat those unclean animals when Jesus tells him to slaughter and to eat them because he's a good old Jewish boy. He does not want to slaughter those animals. But this dream is a metaphor or reality that basically saying that when I tell you, if I can say it this way, Pastor Penis paraphrase, when I tell you that something's acceptable, it's acceptable. And he's telling Peter, you know what, the Gentiles have basically been accepted. That which you have considered unclean beforehand has now been accepted by me 
So now go to this man's home and share the gospel with him. And Peter's beginning to allude to this, and he's going to expand on it. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, talking about the house of Cornelius and to the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. These verses give proof to what God has done among the house of Cornelius. He says, they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. We were promised and we were told to wait in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And now Peter is saying, just like we received the Holy Spirit, I shared the gospel with them and they received the Holy Spirit as well. Given to people who have accepted Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. At the moment we believe the Holy Spirit's working in the process already. Scripture tells us that he's the one who convicts the world of sin. He is working and bringing conviction, and then he's the one who regenerates. He literally takes that which is dead and makes it alive again, and then he takes resonance within us when we respond in faith. And Peter's saying, just like that happened to me, to you, is the same way it happened to Cornelius, and that is the reason we know God is moving in the hearts of the Gentiles. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are accepted by faith. Look back to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 say this. Here's the middle of the story, and it says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing, listen, after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's saying they received just like we did. They believed just like we did. And so because of that, who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to put God in this box and think that God can only work within the way that I believe he can work? Look back at our passage, verse 10. Now therefore, as he continues on, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We're going to come back to that in a moment. So rich. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. What's a yoke? When the Bible talks about a yoke, a yoke was a harness or a contraption that basically linked two animals together, usually oxen, to bear the weight of a heavy load so that they could work that load together and they could distribute the weight evenly. That's what a yoke was. And so by distributing that weight evenly, they were able to accomplish the goal of working the field or whatever they were doing. Listen to the words of Peter. Why are you putting upon these new believers, these Gentiles, a yoke, a harness meant to carry a weight, a weight that you couldn't even carry? None of the disciples, none of the Old Testament saints, no person in human history outside of Jesus was able to fulfill the law. Literally no one. 
It's a weight that we cannot bear. And Peter's saying, you have a lot of nerve trying to throw that weight on them, knowing dang well that you can't carry it yourself. Because you're not meant to carry it. As New Testament believers, the scripture clearly indicates and tells us that the role of the law now to us is to show us exactly how short we do fall. There's no way you and I can ever be saved by the amount of good things that we ever could do. It's a burden impossible for you to bear. It took a savior to provide your salvation for you. You cannot bear that weight. And here is Peter saying, how dare you make other people bear that weight? They can't, just like you can't. So why are you putting obligations on them? The scripture has never changed in this way. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Even in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, they placed their faith and trust. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him toward righteousness. They believed in a sacrificial system and they did the things that they were called to do, but it took faith to actually provide the sacrifice and to go there and be part of the, the sacrifice to receive the atonement, but it still necessitated that they would receive it by faith. This was a major issue that could have caused division within the church, but here's what we see. We see good leadership stepping in. We see outside counsel being involved. We see a P, a Peter appealing to God's work, but we see Peter also appealing to God's word. We see that even though the model of Cornelius and his household coming to faith goes against what their understanding in human tradition was, at the end of the day, they know that God over and supersedes human tradition. And they're saying, even though we have worked within a system, and I understand your trepidation toward this. I can picture Peter saying, just saying that this is not something that we can function in. We no longer function in this. God has done something miraculous. God has worked outside of what we think. And now God is doing a miraculous work in the Gentiles. Let's not try to put them under false obligations. Look at verse 12. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After Peter testifies, Paul and Barnabas get up, and they begin to testify of the great work that God has done. We're coming to a close, and this is really important. Here's a principle for you. When we add requirements to the gospel, we reduce God's grace to legalism. Let me say that again. When we add requirements to the gospel... We reduce God's grace to legalism. Here's what I mean by that. Let's define a term so we're on the same page. Legalism is a churchy term. But I ran across a definition from an article. Listen to this article. Great title. Confessions of a Recovering, recovering Legalist. <laughs> Love that. I would actually put myself in that category. I grew up in a very legalistic tradition. But listen to this definition. Legalism is trying to attain or maintain righteousness with God by human effort. Let me say that again. Legalism is trying to attain or maintain righteousness with God by human effort. Your relationship with God, ladies and gentlemen, is not based upon your performance. It's not based upon my performance. It's based upon God's amazing grace and love. When we actually try to add things to the gospel, what we're really doing is saying that God was insufficient to do what he said he accomplished. 
what we're really doing is by saying that, you know what, I want to put and enter myself into the equation, that there's something I need to do about it. So you're inserting yourself into the equation when you are not part of that equation in that way. There's nothing that you bring to it. Legalism creates a self-condemning spirit within us. We are never good enough. And a judgmental spirit toward others, they are never good enough. That's what happens. Well, you know, salvation, you come to faith in Jesus, you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you place your faith in Jesus, and then you, you live a good Christian life. It's not meant that. Why are we putting these things in opposition? It doesn't mean that we don't do good works. That's not what I'm saying. But if I'm saying that something needs to be added to the gospel, I have then created a new gospel. If I say something needs to be added, oh, baptism needs to be added for salvation, then I've created a new gospel. Good works needs to be added for salvation. No, good works are a byproduct and fruit of the sanctifying work of the Spirit within our life, but no, they are not required for salvation. That's an additional gospel. You have created a new gospel. We have to be very careful that we are not creating a man-focused, man-centered gospel that inserts man into the equation outside of being the passive recipient of the magnificent grace and amazingness of God. We are recipients, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we are. Why have we added requirements to the gospel? Grace is not cheap, even though God gives it so freely. Peter lays out the terms in summary fashions in verse 11 when he says, we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. And Paul states it even more clearly in a verse that you should know by heart by now, these two verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. Say that, you should say that again. You should underline that. You should just like, I mean, that should be striking to you. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. How much more clear does the Apostle Paul have to be that salvation has nothing to do and it's not about you and it's not about our works? It doesn't mean that everybody, I think sometimes we have a tendency to listen to things and hear things and then make things into extremes. Listen to what I believe the text is saying and what we're elaborating right now. Don't read into what is not being said. Just because I believe that salvation is by grace through faith doesn't mean that I believe or that any person really believes, and Paul addresses this, that you could just go ahead and do whatever the heck you want to do. What I think that shows is that you truly have not been a recipient of grace. But that being said, when we put our man-made traditions and our own preferences and add them to the gospel, we've created a new gospel. We have done exactly what God has told us not to do. We have done exactly what, God, what Paul condemns in Galatians 1. If I preach another gospel to you, even an angel, let him be accursed. That's what we have done when we have added things to the gospel. This is the beautiful simplicity of the message of salvation. We can't do anything to earn it. It is the greatest gift ever given. All we can do is receive it. You receive what he has done. Let's summarize and close. So our one true statement this morning was that conflict is inevitable within human relationships. And within the context of this church, their conflict is based upon a theological issue. And in many regards, I would say that this conflict was necessary for them to be able to work through this issue, because this is an issue that could have divided the church right from the jump. So they work through the issue, but there's a problem. 
Conflict always has a source. And that source today was tradition, was what they understood to be the tradition that they had received, circumcision versus the truth and reality of salvation working through the Gentiles in the New Testament. Traditions always start in unique ways, but if we project those onto others, sometimes we miss seeing God in action. And then we saw that there was a discussion and a decision. The elders made the decision and saw clearly that God was providing salvation to the Gentiles. And it was by the same means, by grace through faith, not adding requirements to salvation, placing a burden upon people that they were not meant to bear. The gospel is one of grace, and you and I cannot earn it. Here's two practice points for you, and we'll close. Number one is, I want you to challenge your taste and your traditions. Remember that we said that traditions often start with personal preference, and I would, cause you, I would encourage you to look at your own personal taste and traditions in light of Scripture. Are you missing out on seeing God at work in other individuals or in other ways because you believe God works in only a specific way? Do you know that Firewheel Bible Fellowship is not the only expression of a true church? Can I say that with all humility and can we say amen to that statement? There are Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching, God-affirming, sacrament-practicing, loving people that are part of local churches all around the world that are expressions of the true church. We are not that only expression. We have our own traditions. Some of them have different traditions that may be very unique and different than yours. But it doesn't mean, and let's not be the ones to have a tendency to say that, unless if that tradition blatantly goes against some of the historic things of the faith, there's lots of liberty in certain things that we can practice and we can still affirm that is the church and see the beauty in it and the beauty in our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And lastly, grace and faith plus nothing. Are you a recovering legalist? That's a hard question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But here's the reality. Grace and faith plus nothing. That's an equation that holds weight. Salvation is by grace through faith. Add nothing else. Salvation is by grace through faith. Add nothing else. In all sincerity, when we add a plus sign to that, we have created a new gospel. Let's not be victims and fall victims to that and create something that's not the true gospel. Let's pray. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you that where there's people involved, there's mess, and we are messes, Lord. And we, there's conflict, and at times conflict is something that potentially can be avoided and sometimes it's necessary and sometimes there's conflicts that arise just like this one where there's something of substance to it where we have to work through the understanding of what it really means. And there are many ways this can look different to us even today. But I thank you that salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else. I thank you, Jesus, that somehow in the midst of all the messiness of people, you still have a true church. And all the messiness of people, you still keep this thing together. All these local expressions of the universal church, all across the world, 
and their various traditions, some that may be healthy, some that are scripturally based, some that are even unhealthy, and yet God, you still somehow manage to keep it all together. And yet you're still bringing people to yourself. That goes to show how incredible the work of salvation is and how the gospel is about you. It's not about us. We are merely recipients of the amazing gift, but it's about you and your work. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just be ones that would just rejoice in that reality and allow our hearts to not be ones that would make any prescriptive or decisions upon how others should act based upon the things that we have experienced in many ways that we miss out on seeing the beauty and uniqueness of the body of Christ. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come forward. We're gonna take an opportunity to worship. I'm gonna ask you if you will stand with us as we worship. Every Sunday we take an opportunity to do this because this is one way, one of the acts that are ancient in practice where the church actually, we don't say we're just going to pray for you, we actually pray for you. So please give us an opportunity to be able to do that. But I would encourage you during this time, this is a time to worship, a time to respond to however the Spirit is working in your hearts, respond to the message of what you have heard, and just be able to time to reflect upon Jesus and all that he has done. So let's take an opportunity to worship and pray. And our prayer partners would love to be able to pray with you if you have a specific need. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me. Stand to my defense. for me stand to my defense Jesus it's your blood what can wash away our sin what can make us whole again nothing but the blood nothing but the blood What can wash us pure as snow, welcomed in as friends of God? Nothing but your blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus. Father's heart to make a way for us. Now boldly we approach, now earthly confidence. 
It's only by your blood What can wash away our sins What can make us whole again Nothing but the blood Nothing but the blood of What can wash us pure as snow, welcomed in as friends of God? Nothing but your blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus. What grateful for the blood of Jesus that still saves and redeems, washes us pure as snow. Y'all may be seated. We're going to take our offering this morning. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to worship the Lord through our giving. It's an opportunity for us to, money is a tool, it's a vehicle, allows us to be able to have a facility, to be able to do ministry on earth. I want to thank you for your gracious giving and just pray that God would bless the gift and the giver. If it's your first time here at Firewheel, I'd love to be able to just uh, welcome you and just our guest services attendants would love to get to meet you, give you a special gift for worshiping with us. So as you exit the auditorium today, make sure to stop by the Connection Center, get some information about the church, see if there's a way that we can come alongside of you and serve you and just we'd love to give you a little special gift for just worshiping with us. No strings attached. If you want to provide some information to us, then we'd love to stay in contact with you. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to give. Thank you for the blessing of life and salvation in Jesus. But thank you for all that you provide and the material resources that we can utilize here on earth. I pray that you bless this gift and the giver and cause this offering to multiply. And Lord, that we may continue to use it for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Camp is right around the corner, and it's such an influential time in our kids' lives. If you would like to donate to help send one of our kids or youth to camp, 
you can go online to firewheelfellowship.com giving and choose camp sponsorship in the drop-down menu. For more information, contact Barbara at firewheelfellowship.com. Sunday, June 18th, will be a parent-child dedication. If you would like to take part, contact Barbara at firewheelfellowship.com by June 11th. Name and picture due by June 13th. For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewheelfellowship.com slash events, or you'll find us on social media. All right, y'all, if you could stand, we'll go ahead and say our benediction to get you dismissed. But before we get you dismissed, uh, thank you for the reminder. Uh, I did not intentionally forget this, but it's unfortunate that the culture that we live in, mass shooting has basically become a, uh, a topic that is in our vocabulary. But it's the reality and depravity of sin that we see in our world. And so I would, I would encourage you all to continue to keep in prayer the family of all those affected by the shooting in Allen and for um, the trauma that those victims who saw those things would live with as well. And Survivor's Guild is a real thing. And just come, Lord Jesus, come, right? The sad reality of our world that our kids have to grow up where that's even in our vocabulary now. Um, church, we need to love people well. And we have no idea what people are going through. And this tra trauma is real. And it's real what we see in our world. And so continue to pray for those families. So as I pray our blessing and to let you go, think about that as well this week. May the Lord go before you to light, your, light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. I love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you all next time.